I don't know if you uh, remember the comedian George Carlin. Some of you uh, recall who he is, and he used to do a routine about the difference between football and baseball. Anybody recall that at all? He he would he would talk about the two, and he say football is played on the gridiron, baseball is played in a park. Football players wear helmets, and baseball players wear caps. In football, the specialist comes in to kick something. In baseball, the specialist comes in to relieve somebody. Baseball has a seventh inning stretch. Football has a two-minute warning. Baseball has extra innings, and football has sudden death. In football, the runner gives you the stiff arm. In baseball, the runner gets to slide. Wee fun. But the biggest difference is that football, in football, the main objective is military. The battle is fought in the trenches, and the field general, the quarterback, seeks to evade the blitz and soften the enemy line with a pounding ground attack and an occasional aerial bombardment. Sometimes he uses bullet passes, and when he thinks it will work, he goes for a bomb to riddle the enemy defenses and penetrate the end zone. In baseball, the main objective is just get home. (laughs) There is within the structure of the reality of the game called baseball a simple truth. You seek to get home. You do all you can do to get the first base, then second base, then third, and you would think that the next one would be called fourth, but it isn't. It's, it's called home. And the object is to get home, and there's just a simple path you must follow to get there. No one argues this because it's part of the rules of baseball. There's no fudging or cutting corners. In fact, there's a judge called an ump who watches to make sure that you touch all the bases so you can get safely home. It's just the way it is. Every batter, if they're to get safely home, follows this prescribed route. It's the reality of baseball. No batter argues with the ump. I beg to differ, sir. That may be your truth, but it's not mine. No manager has has overturned a call because they have said in a winning argument that I'm sorry, that prescribed route is a little bit too narrow. It's just not broad-minded enough. See, it doesn't matter in the reality of this game whether you would prefer running from first to the pitcher's mound and to third and then home, or if you would prefer to run to first base and then run back home. The truth is the truth, and the rules are the rules in the reality of the game called baseball. If you want to get home, you follow the prescribed path. Now, what does that have to do with Palm Sunday? Nothing. No, just kidding. On this day, we celebrate an event in the life of Jesus. It's an acted out parable of Jesus riding into town on the cult of a donkey. And in this acted out parable, a question is raised. Is Jesus truly the king of this world and universe and all the laws and all the reality of it? Is life with God exclusively through this king, Jesus? 
Is Jesus uniquely the way to get home? Well, if you examine the story and look at this story as you read the story of Jesus coming in on this cult of a donkey, you'll find that Jesus knowingly arranged this event. This was not some kind of thing by chance that people decided to get a bunch of palms. He arranged this, intentionally selected a colt of a donkey, had his disciples go get it, bring it so that he could ride it into Jerusalem that day. Jesus very much knew what he was doing. Jesus was making an announcement And not doing a teaching like he might normally do, but this teaching, again, was an acted-out, kind of dramatic parable. And it was simply this. Your king, the king of every heart, is here. And he has come to you in peace, seeking for you and every subject in this kingdom, when they hear this good news, the gospel, would come to God, their father, Acknowledging their need of him, their sin, their separation, and would through him, Jesus the King, come to him, God. Now, in that day, it was very common. In fact, you can look at ancient history and you'll find that when a people were in a place of rebellion, a city had become um, rebellious towards the taxation or whatever else might be um, put upon them by the, by the ruling class or party or specifically emperor, king, Caesar, whatever it might be, they would come to that city and they would ride and that king would come riding on a war horse. They knew that it meant battle. It knew that he was coming to completely quench the rebellion. But if he was coming with an offer of peace, he would ride in on this new cult of a donkey or a horse. And as he would ride in, people would cheer and they would wave palms because they would be acknowledging their king had come and he had come in peace to bring about reconciliation. Now let's read together John 12 with that as a background and a backdrop to that story. Let's stand together as I read these words to you. It says, The next day the great crowd that had come for the festival, heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. And they took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written. Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Thank you. You may be seated. What's interesting, like any good parable, especially this one that is acted out, it would have a number of different responses. Just like as I'm speaking to you, there might be different responses as people are thinking through this. And and that was true in the day that when Jesus came into town. There were a number of people that were told, um, responded in different ways. And so if you look at the different Gospels, you'll find that each Gospel writer has a a different view from the response of those who are coming. You know, like eyewitnesses, they all have their own view and they record what's important to them. Mark is an interesting gospel writer because he doesn't give really any response. He just says that Jesus came to Jerusalem and he went right to his home, the temple. He's making the statement 
that this king came and he went to his palace, in a sense. But the other writers give us an interesting view. It says, um, the first response that we look at in Matthew chapter 21, verses 10 through 11, is the response of the crowd. And that's what Matthew seems to be concerned about. He says in verse 10 of chapter 21, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. And so you see the response of a number of people in the crowd that day. Here's a mere man with a divinely appointed mission. That's what a number of people thought. That's why they were raising the Hosannas. They were thinking, here is someone who is really special. Kind of like what people might think today. When you ask them about who Jesus is, they will often respond and say, Jesus was this really um, great teacher, very spiritually wise, who went around promoting love and reconciliation. Yet some... As they were holding those Hosanna branches, saw an earthly king. They saw the Messiah who had come to Israel, who was going to overthrow Rome. And so they threw down these palms as you would a king who was entering the city. And as this king would enter the city, their hopes were that this king would overthrow the political powers. And he would use his power to come against the power that was enslaving them. But there's another response that, that we're told about in Luke, Luke chapter 19, verses 34 through 39 through 44. And it's a response of religious leaders. So we have the crowd and all kinds of responses in the crowd. But the religious leaders, it's interesting because Luke wants us to see what they're thinking. And they're thinking, in a sense, here's someone who has overstated his authority. He is coming in. And he is making a claim that he's not going to be able to back up. And they're afraid of what that might mean. So this little ride into town made them very uncomfortable because they were well aware. You you have to understand that although the crowd may have some different views, the religious authorities were very much aware of the statement Jesus was making. It was not lost on them. They knew Jesus knew what he was doing. So if you listen to the response, the response in chapter 19, verse 39, is some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. They're out of line. you got to tell them to be quiet. you got to use your authority to tell them to get in order. But Jesus makes an interesting comment, and he says to them, I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Now, that's an interesting statement. He's basically saying, sorry, guys, but what you're asking for me to do is impossible. You see, when you see something overwhelmingly beautiful and and you're just awed by it, what's your natural response? You can't help but do what? You kind of just go, ah, and respond. Or or, or when when you see someone who you're deeply in love with and they've been away for a while, try and tell your heart not to beat faster. Or when someone graciously picks up the bill for you, you can't but spontaneously see, feel a sense of, of joy and, and a desire to share your gratefulness. I have a dog, Tessa. And this dog, Tessa, is really amazing. You would think I never feed this dog. She's 10 years old, but she acts like a two-year-old. And I will come out in the morning, and she will just jump all over the place. She cannot wait for her meal. It'll be interesting that we may have actually eaten during dinner sometime a, a, 
um, maybe a steak or chicken or something like that, and we have it left over. I never have any leftovers, but my wife possibly. Um, and I will come out, and that dog will just begin to get excited. And if I hold it for very long, it has a natural reaction. It begins to salivate. Now, if someone said to me, Kevin, get your dog in line, what is wrong with you? I'd say kind of like what I can't keep my dog quiet. If they keep quiet, Jesus says, the stones will cry out. Because when you experience God's presence, you can't help but respond. And if they didn't, creation itself would begin to burst for joy. That's a pretty powerful statement. And then you see Jesus, as he, after that, we're told in Luke, responds to their rejection. He knows they've rejected him. He's coming in, he's come in peace. And as Jesus approaches the city of Jerusalem, and he comes to the edge of the town, and in that city, if you've ever you come from Jordan, you take that road, as you take a bend, as you come past Bethany, you'll see, you'll overlook at a certain point, and you'll see the whole city of Jerusalem. And Jesus comes to that exact place. He looks over it. And he's overcome. It says that Jesus weeps because he sees the coming destruction and devastation of the city. In 40 years, he knows in AD 70, Rome will obliterate Jerusalem, and his heart is torn. Not because some architecture and some buildings that were beautiful, a temple will be torn down but due to the people who fail to recognize his presence and turn to him. He weeps. John tells us he weeps at another time when the people fail to recognize that standing before them is the God who can raise Lazarus from the dead. They don't understand that death has no power in the presence of God. Death cannot hold one person here in the grave if you've placed your heart and your faith in Jesus. And so he weeps, and he weeps again, like a parent who sees a child, and you see your child beginning to do something, and you, you know that you can't turn their heart. There's no way. I mean, that's their choice. That's the freedom they've been given. When they're younger, you can curb their actions. You can discipline them. But they get to a certain age, they can't. And when you watch them at a certain point, you know that they're out of your home, and you can't do a thing. Your heart does what when you see them heading in a direction that's going to cause them great pain? Your heart breaks. His heart breaks as he looks over Jerusalem and he's not looking at some buildings, he's looking at the people who choose to reject him. Listen to what it says in verses 41 through 44. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. And they will dash you to the ground, you and your children, within your walls. And they will not leave one stone on another because, catch this, because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. You may be in that same place today. God has been 
kind of knocking on your heart. It may be that it's been through some difficulties. He's trying to get hold of your heart. It may be through blessings. He's saying, just want you to know. It may be through many different ways, but he's standing there knocking on your heart, and he's saying, don't let the time pass. Jesus weeps because they refuse to recognize that in him, Jesus, God has come. Now, I want you to note one other response, because it's really interesting when you look at this other response, and that is found in the, the Gospel of John. So we have this Gospel of Matthew, and we have the Gospel of Luke, and now we have one other response, the one that we read from this morning. It's found in John chapter 12, verse 16, and I think it's very interesting because here is the admission on John, the writer of the gospel, that they didn't get a lot of what was going on when they were walking with Jesus. You ever had that kind of experience? You're, you're, you're kind of going through something, and it's not till after you go, whoa, I never caught that. Well, that's, I, I love that kind of, when you read that, it, it just shows authenticity in the text. Um, there's, a, there's a guy named Scott Peck who used to write a bunch of different books and he had this kind of the road less traveled idea he used from one of the poems. And, but he said he had been talking in places about Jesus and about some of the sayings of Jesus and he realized he'd never studied Jesus. He wasn't a believer, he wasn't a Christian. He said he went as a psychiatrist and studied and read the Gospels and he came away from the Gospels. He said those are authentic accounts of people and he was touched by it and he opened his heart to Jesus. So at first, it says in chapter 12, verse 16 of John, at first, his disciples did not understand all this. He's, re- he's commenting here on what happened in the triumphal entry. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. They didn't get who Jesus really was. They missed it. But not till the glorification, which is a word that John uses for the resurrection. When Jesus went into the grave and showed his power over death and showed his life eternal with God that he was offering to any person. We're talking about the afterlife. This ability to live with God now and to find your home in his heart and to live with him forever. Not only did they not get it, but it wasn't until the resurrection that they began to realize these things written about him. And when they looked back, it was clear that Jesus was not just a good teacher, some extraordinary prophet, not merely some human Messiah king to come against Rome, but that Jesus was actually the king of the universe, God in flesh appearing. And Jesus reveals a God who, this is what I love about it, who uses his power to lift up the oppressed, to release the enslaved, He leads the charge to stop human trafficking. He uses his power unlike any other ruler, unlike your boss, unlike myself or any of us. He is constantly using his power to lift you up, to save you, to do whatever he can to bring you to the place that you will be fully all that God had created you to be. And you see him doing it again. So what are these things they seem to miss Well, one of the first things you see is the Old Testament prophecies. In fact, this prophecy that you find in John is from Zechariah 9.9. And Zechariah Zechariah is really a whole book about the coming of this king. And this one says, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. John puts this in here because this is one they missed. 
Don't fear even if you've blown it or messed up or rebelled or failed to understand whatever is what this is saying. The king has come and he's coming on a donkey's colt. This was predicted years before it ever happened. Here would be Jesus, the king of the universe, would be coming not on some war horse. If you read Revelation, you'll see that he comes back in this white stallion on a war horse. But he's coming on this colt and this colt was the sign of peace for any person who would just invite him to be a person who could influence their life and would be willing to say, Jesus, I want to participate throughout my life with you. God had shown up in Jesus. The Old Testament prophecies, they finally began to see them as they were written. And then the claims of Jesus, they missed those things as well. I mean, it makes sense. I mean, you're in the midst of it. You can't see it. John 1 Verses 1 and 18, John, now he gets it, he writes later through this gospel, he says, in the beginning was the Word, and he's kind of paralleling Genesis 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Not a God, as it's in the as Jehovah Witnesses come to your door who translate something. They can't translate this way. It says, was God. So that in verse, as you go later on, it says the word became flesh and he lived for a while among us. So Jesus, when he became flesh, John tells us on a number of occasions because they were aware of the great revelation of God to Moses. Here was Moses saying, how do I go to the Pharaoh? How do I go to this great oppressing force that has us enslaved? What do, who do I tell? Who do I tell them you are? And he goes, just tell them I am that I am. I'm the great I am. I've existed past, present, and forever. So Moses goes, okay, I'll do that. Jesus shows up and he says, I am, in everyone's ears is there, the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door that you need to pass through to to really move into reality and live with God the way he intended for you to live, to understand that all his teachings and all his laws are wonderful. They taste good, says Psalms, because they are in line with reality. I am the good shepherd, which if you read through Ezekiel and Jeremiah and other, you'll say there's only one person who called himself a good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. And then when he's about to leave and say, I'm going to prepare a home for you so that that home, which was the dwelling in our hearts, that we would invite him into, that he would come into our hearts, he leaves, before he leaves, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but what? Through me, by me. And then he finishes by telling them this last one, I am the vine, which he, which in the Old Testament was always the, the picture of God, this vine, and the branches to it were his people, people who would find their life abiding in him and his presence. At one point, while teaching, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. And some people like to go, well, yeah, it was just kind of saying spiritually we're kind of aligned with each other. But you can't say that. Because if you continue to read, you see the response of his enemies to his claim. John chapter 10, verses 31 to 33. It begins and it says again, 
which means this must have happened a number of times. They, this enemies understood he was claiming that he was far more than just spiritually aligned with his father. Listen to what it says. Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the father. For which of these do you stone me? You know, even if you can't believe, at least believe in the miracles will attest to the fact that there is this great presence in your midst. And they say to him, we're not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Throughout history, I've just got notes here. Pliny, who was writing in 110 AD to the emperor, to Romans, he was asking on whether he should continue to persecute and should continue to execute followers of Jesus. He noted to Trajan, the emperor, he said there were two leading women that were of the church and he's done an interview with them. He's tortured them already. Should he execute them? As the letter goes on, and, and he basically says the sum total of their guilt or error was no more than the following they had where they met regularly before dawn and sung a hymn to Christ as if God. His enemies saw it. And it wasn't until the resurrection that the disciples saw it clearly. New Testament scholar and historian N.T. Wright in his book, Simply Christian, Why Christianity Makes Sense, says the earliest Christians, those who followed Jesus during his short public career, had never imagined a Messiah that would be divine. That just was not in their Jewish traditions of the time. They remained firmly within Jewish monotheism. That was incredible that you needed that. The Old Testament had spoken of a Messiah, the coming king, as God's adopted son. And in that sense, the highest rank in their mind of a human being. But there was no such thought of, of a king being the very embodiment of Israel's God himself. Until there was an astonishing shift called the glorification or the resurrection where this understanding changed everything, says John. And Wright continues, and they said all these things about Jesus not three or four centuries later. If you read Dan Brown and Da Vinci Code, that whole thing, he just talks about this big conspiracy. If you read that book, there is not one thing true about what he has to say about that except for the date when this council took place. It's just a bunch of fabrication of lies. It was not three or four centuries later, but after a long period of reflection and development at a point when it might conceivably have been socially or politically desirable to say it, they said that he was God within a single generation in historical documents, both enemies and ones of his followers claim this. And they said it even though it was shocking to the religious sensibilities of both Jews and pagans, Moreover, they said it even though it meant a direct political confrontation with the claims of Rome. Caesar, after all, was the son of God. He was the Lord of the world. His kingdom was all-powerful. It was at his name that every knee had already bowed. And there is Christians' evaluation of Jesus as the place where heaven and earth met, the replacement of the temple, the embodiment of the living God, was about as socially provocative and as well as theologically innovative as it could possibly have been. 
So back to my question, is there a prescribed way home found uniquely in Jesus? Is Jesus the only exclusive pathway into the external presence of God? And when you think about it, the enemies of Jesus charged Jesus to be God. His disciples, after the resurrection, came to believe Jesus is God. And on top of all this, Jesus himself claimed to be God. If Jesus is God, then you would be asking this question, is Jesus Who is God, the exclusive pathway to God? Does that that make sense? In philosophy, they call it a tautology. It means there's a needless repetition of an idea. It's like saying a widow woman, because implied in a widow is the idea of a woman. Implied in the name Jesus, not just implied, but explicitly stated is is the, the meaning God. If Jesus is the embodiment of God, then Jesus, as he said, is, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm, I am the revelation of God. So now, just some implications around this, okay? Do you have a few moments? We'll just do a couple of these. Oh, I don't know how quickly I can do these. Um, do all religions lead to the same place, right? That's a big question we got today. The idea is that all religions get you to God. It's just that they're different paths, and that's kind of the today's pluralistic vision where we would say, yeah, it doesn't matter. But one of the fundamental laws of logic is the law of non-contradiction. Basically, opposite ideas cannot both be true at the same time and in the same way. So if you're willing to look at what the different religions teach, even on a cursory level, you will find they offer contradictory pictures of reality. There's a, a, a book that was um, one of the best books, according to Christianity Today, um, just a year or so ago, called The Story of Reality. I think it's a, a well-written book. He, he writes um, in this, he says, if our story, the story of Jesus, is really true in the deep sense, then it ought to be obvious that other religious stories taken as a complete pictures of the world are simply mistaken. This does not mean, of course, that they are wrong at every point. This would be a foolish mistake to make. There are many individual things a religion might teach that are completely sound, such as the golden rule. Many of them have that. I mean, rather, that it is if the story of Jesus is true, all other stories taken as a whole cannot be true as well. To say otherwise would be to make a foolish mistake. A man once told me I was probably one of the bigoted people, one of those bigoted people who thought 90% of the world was wrong about the religion, and I agreed with that 90% part. But I told him it had more to do with math than with bigotry. Think about this. Some religions teach Jesus is the Son of God and others deny it. Fair enough. But it is not clear that somebody is right and somebody is wrong on that score. There is simply no getting it around it. The great monotheistic faiths understood God as a distinct individual person, whereas upon the Eastern religions see God as an impersonal sum of everything put together. It is not, is it not clear that if there is a God, both of these notions cannot be true about Him as the same, at the same time. Clearly, massive members of people are mistaken on one side of this issue or the other. You see, you see, you can't just say, oh, they're all the same. 
When anyone dies, they might go to heaven or they might go to hell or they might be reincarnated or they might disappear into nothing at all. But even a child can see that they cannot do them all at the same time. Multitudes, the majority even, must be mistaken. Again, that's not bigotry. That's just simple math. And notice I'm not wasting our time by splitting hairs about inconsequentials. No, I am speaking of the heart of things, the foundations, the deep structures, the most basic claims about reality that religions make. So then, though it's the rage today that say that all religions are basically the same, it turns out not to be the case at all. We ought to, we ought to strike us, it, what ought to strike us rather is how unlike each other they really are. What ought, and when it comes to the most important things, each religion's picture of reality is quite different from the others. And those differences simply cannot be smoothed over by invoking some naive stories about blind men and elephants. You ever heard of that? We're all just kind of holding on to the difference of the elephant. You just can't do that. So, Jesus makes a very interesting claim. He makes a claim that, yes, through him, he's the map of reality, the picture of reality. He will show you how to come into contact and to walk with God, to know God, so that God can be in your heart and he can build his home in your heart so that that home is with him forever and ever. I I like how C.S. Lewis says this, and, and you've heard some of you this before. But he basically says in in the book Mere Christianity, we're presented with a choice, and the choice is pretty simple. Either Jesus represents reality so that all that he teaches and all that he thinks and all that he shares is true in line with what's been created, or it's not. And if it is, then you'd want to understand who he is, what he's taught, how he lived, and what your response should be to him. So that he says at one point, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. A person may say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept this claim to be God, the map of reality. And as Lewis writes, that is the one thing we must not say. A man who is, not, who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell because he's lying. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else he's a madman or something worse. You cannot shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him, kill him, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. Let us not come with any other patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open for us, and he never intended to. So I'm going to ask the team to come forward, and I would like for us just to take a moment, um, just to bow in uh, just a moment of silence before the Lord. If Jesus is God, this Palm Sunday, I just want to invite you to think once again 
if he's Lord of your life? Are you willing to know him? Are you willing to walk with him? Are you willing to follow his direction and commands? Are you willing to worship him? Because when you see him face to face, you have only but one response. Every person, whether they believe in him or not, will fall on their face, on their knees. It's just the way creation has been wired. You will either fall before him in worship and adoration, or you will fall before him in terror and fear. Not because you're good enough, not because you've earned to be in his presence, but merely because you've acknowledged him as who he said he was, who he claimed to be, and as everyone has seen him. God. Jesus, God, the only way to God, the Father. Father, we pray that the same question that you raised through Jesus, as Jesus, you walked through and, and went through the city on that donkey, would be raising questions in all our hearts and our responses would be ones that honor and celebrate you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.